Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you hear from a panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to our program today, highlights from the 2021 American Society of Clinical Oncology or ASCO annual meeting. And the theme of this conference is equity, every patient, every day, everywhere. And uh, today's program is a remarkable program in the sense that we have amazing speakers, lots of them actually covering different types of cancers on today's program. And um, I do want to acknowledge that today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Oncology, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. And we have today over 200 participants on the program today, and you come from all of the United States, from all different regions of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, as well as frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Bangladesh, Canada, India, Kenya, Malaysia, the Philippines, and United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And indeed, Cancer Today is, of course, a global issue, very much so. And now it's really my great pleasure now to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing how ASCO contributes to equity in the treatment of cancer for every cancer patient every day, everywhere, and updates on the treatment of lung cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you for joining us, uh, everyone, uh, today. Um, first, a few words about ASCO. It stands for the American Society of uh, Clinical Oncology, and it's the largest organization on earth, actually, that brings together uh, practitioners uh, caring for people with cancer. Um, and uh, every year, nearly 40,000 people usually come to the uh, convention center in Chicago uh, to meet one another, share thoughts, and, and try to uh, hear about the latest advances in the field. Uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the uh, pandemic, uh, this has uh, not happened for the last two years, but ASCO has actually soldiered on uh, in a virtual way uh, to try to bring uh, latest advances of cancer uh, to uh, all the practitioners. And what they, they try to do is to create a forum where people present the latest advances uh, in cancer across all aspects of the cancer uh, field, uh, and they bring together uh, groups of practitioners, uh, advocates, people developing drugs from pharma, people from all over the world to try to share experiences and to share uh, information. Uh, ASCO also, you know, has a political arm. They're try they work very hard. They're, they're based uh, in Washington, uh, and they work very, very closely to try to uh, advocate for uh, uh, cancer treatment, can money for cancer research, uh, money for uh, distribution of cancer services and trying to do so. And I think more than anything else, they try to create an environment where advances 
are put in the hands of anybody on Earth that could use those cancer advances. Uh, and this sharing of expertise and information is, is what they do. Uh, Lori Pierce this year particularly you know, committed uh, to try to look for and remove any barriers uh, that would keep that information from getting out. Um, now, I'm, I'm happy to report that it's just been a, a truly amazing time uh, in the fight against lung cancer. Uh, many of you have saw news reports or read the article in the New England Journal by Dr. Howlander uh, almost a year ago today uh, that because of advances in therapy, because of the better therapies we have in lung cancer, particularly targeted therapies, um, the actual mortality of lung cancer has fallen in the United States, really for the first time. So that's fantastic news. We've previously shown we could reduce the mortality of lung cancer through cancer screening. And of course, uh, we are strong advocates for lung cancer screening. Uh, anybody who smoked any amount really should have yearly low-dose uh, CT scans. But for the first time, cancer treatment has made a difference. And this has been so uh, important for us as a message to share to patients and families fighting cancer, also as a message to the people working hard to find better treatments. Um, despite all of our work over the last many decades, we've never had this statistic where the mortality of lung cancer has fallen due to our treatments, and this is a great effort. This year at ASCO, a number of very important uh, presentations were made uh, along this theme, highlighting the advances that um, have been made. Uh, and I think the biggest advance that was reported on this year was the use of immunotherapeutic drugs, a drug called the tezolizumab after cancer surgery, and a drug called nivolumab with chemotherapy before surgery. Both of these trials showed that by coupling drug treatments with surgery, with potentially curative surgeries, the cure rate can go up. More people can remain cancer-free longer. Um, this is uh, still early data. Um, the uh, work is in progress now to get these drugs that are already available for people with advanced cancers, but to make them available for patients that have earlier stage cancers that have successful surgeries but are still at risk for having the cancer come back. Um, it is likely that these uh, trials will lead to uh, FDA approvals and, and worldwide availability of these agents. But I think there's very, very good news there, and I think we're going to see this landscape change. Some other news that got reported that, that's here now was the use of immune therapies, particularly a drug called uh, Dervalimab, and it's one of the immune checkpoint inhibitors. What they found years ago that when this medicine is given for one year after the completion of simultaneous chemotherapy and radiation, that patients uh, can uh, live longer and more be cured. And what they presented at ASCO this year, a presentation by Dr. Spiegel, was the results five years later. And what they showed was that these very hopeful results uh, presented for the first time uh, many years ago now with five-year follow-up, have shown that more than a third of the patients receiving this trivalumab with the chemotherapy and radiation appear to be cured of their cancers. And that's just tremendous news. 
this treatment is available to everybody right now uh, if they have locally advanced cancer. Uh, and if, uh, so that this is really good news. It confirms what the earlier data suggested. Uh, and this is a treatment that your physicians have now that can put to, be put to use for you now if you have that stage of cancer. And these are people with locally advanced cancers. Generally, they're ones that have cancer still localized to the chest, but kind of beyond the reach of a, a, a surgery. Um, the uh, doctors at the Food and Drug Administration uh, also uh, did a very nice uh, project. And what they did was they showed that if you give chemotherapy with an immune checkpoint drug, that the results are better. Uh, I, I know there's this whole, uh, I'll call it uh, anti-chemotherapy movement, you know, let's get away from chemotherapy. But the truth is in lung cancer, uh, patients find that chemotherapy not only extends life, but it can increase the chance of cure. And what they showed in these trials, uh, the FDA reviewed information that had presented, been presented to them by drug sponsors. They saw that when you give chemotherapy, with the immune checkpoint blockers, particularly for those patients that have this uh, PDL1 expression uh, and the, uh, the lower half of PDL1 expression, less than 50%, those people had longer lives. So um, a cautionary note that chemo is not right for everybody, and, and yes, there are serious concerns when you receive chemotherapy, but there's unequivocal evidence that it extends life uh, and and with surgery or radiation, it can improve the chance of cure. So please be very careful if your doctors are suggesting chemotherapy to you. Look what is um, the advantage to you, and despite the, its negative effects, there's so many good effects that, that happen. Um, there were also advances reported this year for uh, so-called targeted therapies. For now, about half of lung adenocarcinomas, the most common kind of lung cancer, we are able to do a genetic test at the time of diagnosis and find a genetic defect in the cancer, not in the person, in the cancer. And the genetic defects we find are linked to specific therapies. And these specific therapies work very, very well for people whose cancers have those genetic defects. They actually don't work for people that don't, whose cancers don't have those defects, and that's a useful thing, too, because you're not going to get a therapy that is very, very unlikely to help you, and instead, when we find a genetic defect, we can give you a therapy very likely to help you, and generally associated with fewer side effects than, than the other cancer therapies we have. One of the most um, uh, impressive examples of this is with a certain genetic uh, change a genetic defect called the EGFR mutation. Here we have many, many drugs approved, and the drugs work extremely well. Nine out of ten chances that it's going to help people have their cancer uh, under control. However, despite that nine out of ten benefit with the medicines up front, the medicines eventually lose their ability to control the cancer, and other therapies, you know, have to be given to uh, as a next step. This year at ASCO, two papers were presented about the next generation of medicines that showed very, very promising results after the initial drug, osimertinib, proved uh, uh, unsuccessful. 
And those two medicines were, uh, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, the, the number name is U31402. It's called patritumab deruxtecan, uh, and it's a monoclonal antibody that's infused. And this monoclonal antibody has attached to it a chemo, and it delivers the chemo to the cancer cell uh, directly. This medicine has been shown to uh, impressively uh, improve the, and shrink the cancers in about a third of patients whose cancers have stopped benefiting from the initial osimertinib. Uh, the second uh, medicines were combinations of drugs, another monoclonal antibody called emivantinib, uh, given with a drug that's similar to the osimertinib, is a drug called lazertinib. Giving those two drugs together also are, are, uh, permit about a third of the patients, despite the fact that their cancer grew on the initial therapy, to have their cancer shrink again. And that number uh, is very, very encouraging. Uh, and to have two new medicines available uh, for this condition is something that we've been very, very uh, uh, anxious to be able to recommend to our patients. So these medicines are also marching toward a regulatory approval. The amivantinib achieved approval this year for patients with a different kind of EGFR mutation, EGFR exon 20, that drug's available for patients now uh, if they have that EGFR exon 20. But for the more common EGFR mutations, the 19 and the LA58R to the aficionados on the phone, uh, we are going to have these newer medicines as a second treatment. Developments were also uh, presented uh, for uh, a different uh, genetic defect in cancer cells, and that's called MET, M-E-T, uh, like, uh, like the New York METs. Um, damage in those genes or duplication of those genes leads to a sensitivity to medicines. And uh, there was uh, information presented at the ASCO meeting this year for two different drugs, a drug called capmatinib and a drug called tapotinib. Both of these drugs are FDA approved. Capmatinib, and they're both approved for the uh, defect in the, the MET gene in exon 14. The data presented there uh, at ASCO this year uh, by Dr. Uh, Wolf uh, showed a benefit in, as a first treatment uh, once cancer is discovered, and it also showed benefit for giving capmatinib uh, in patients that had had another treatment, the other treatment stopped working. Uh, and, and this drug worked as well. Not quite as well as getting it initially, uh, but uh, also uh, provided a whole new opportunity for patients whose cancer had grown after their initial therapy, and that drug was capbatinib. A second drug, a drug called tapotinib, tapotinib, also targeting MET, but here it was a somewhat different uh, type of genetic damage. Instead of this mutation, it, it targeted what they call amplification, sometimes the gene uh, is not uh, damaged, but the number of the copies of the gene are increased. And that increase in the number of gene copies also can uh, show a sensitivity to these drugs. And in this trial, the giving the drug to potnib to people had so-called amplification of the MET gene led to a clear benefit in, in more than a third of patients there too. So, uh, in addition to the EGFR and ALK that may have you, many of you may have heard of, the MET gene now, both in mutation and amplification, we have FDA-approved drugs out there already that your doctors can use. 
I think the message on these targeted therapies is you need to have your tumors tested. You need to have them comprehensively tested. They need to be tested at the time of diagnosis. And I think more and more doctors are, are making sure that that gets done. Testing is available uh, throughout the United States, both from tissue and blood. One last thing to mention as we close, and a wave of the future. There was a, a, a project there that, that I was involved with uh, using artificial intelligence to look at pathologic specimens and to use machine learning, artificial intelligence technology to look at tumor tissue after treatment. And by looking at the effects of a treatment on a tumor tissue, they could predict the uh, future for the uh, patient with that cancer, whether the cancer is likely to recur, whether the cancer is not likely to recur. I mention this to say that technology is going to uh, um, be advanced here, that we're going to be able to find cancers that are very high risk of recurrence, where we would wait, want to give more therapy or more intensive therapies, and cancers that are going to be at low risk of recurrence, where we could either stop therapy earlier or not give as intensive a therapy. Uh, there are other examples of that in oncology, and here is an example in lung cancer where this is going to happen. So this has been an uh, outstanding time for the treatment of lung cancer, and I think the advances presented at the ASCO meeting this year uh, really summarize all the important developments in the field. I think the important thing is that there are developments for all stages of cancer, the earliest and the latest, for many, many different uh, subtypes. There are advances available for people that do not have one of these genetic changes. Uh, and when we look at the overall U.S. results, we've seen that we've made true progress in cutting down uh, the mortality of lung cancer. So I would ask everybody to work closely with your healthcare partners uh, look at options available and choose the best options for you. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Chris. That was outstanding and really, and you really started off the call with wonderful information for our participants. So thank, thank you so much. It's really very, very helpful on lung cancer. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be presenting updates on the treatment of colorectal cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thanks so much, Dr. Mesner, and thanks for this opportunity to join you. Uh, very similar to what Dr. Chris spoke about in terms of themes at ASCO, for colorectal cancer, there was also emphasis on the continuation of efforts to identify unique biologic features within colorectal tumors for which specific uh, treatment um, programs can be devised. Now, uh, as in one example, and I'll, and I'll give several, uh, is the evaluation of a very important biologic pathway in tumors known as the DNA mismatch repair pathway. It is now routine for pathologists who are evaluating colon or rectal tumors to look at mismatch repair proteins, whether they are present, um, um, otherwise known as proficient, or if they are absent, known as deficient mismatch repair proteins. Another way 
to look at this pathway is to determine whether a tumor is uh, microsatellite stable or microsatellite high. Microsatellites are short repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. And these sequences are prone to er errors. And there are genes that routinely correct these errors and therefore repair the cell. If a tumor is deficient mismatch repair or MSI high, these errors may not be corrected and tumors can develop. These genes can be altered through germline or inherited mutations or by non-inherited loss of expression. About 15% of all patients with colorectal uh, tumors are deficient mismatch repair. And in some cases, it's inherited, referred to as Lynch syndrome, but most are not. Uh, most patients present with surgically removable tumors. However, about 5% of all patients with metastatic colorectal cancer have deficient mismatch repair. And with that background, it is really important, uh, particularly for metastatic patients, to know if they're deficient mismatch repair, if they have deficient mismatch repair tumors, because these are the individuals who may respond to immunotherapy. Uh, and at ASCO this year, a practice-changing trial was presented known as the Keynote 177 trial. And this trial uh, was looking at immunotherapy, uh, particularly a checkpoint inhibitor that Dr. Chris mentioned. Um, and uh, we do know that for patients who have previously received chemotherapy and have deficient mismatch repair tumors, uh, that they can benefit from an immune checkpoint uh, inhibitor. And so in this particular trial, uh, this trial evaluated patients who never received treatment for their metastatic disease up until now, and uh, they were randomized to receive either the immunotherapeutic drug pembrolizumab or standard chemotherapy. Uh, these regimens are typically Fulfox or Fulfiri chemotherapy combinations. And as expected, the pembrolizumab was very well tolerated. And compared to chemotherapy, it showed a very highly significant uh, benefit um, in terms of uh, progression-free survival. And importantly, uh, this benefit was quite prolonged. And um, so therefore, this is now a standard of care, that patients with uh, uh, deficient uh, mismatch repair tumors uh, should receive uh, pembrolizumab. There was some concern because not all patients, despite having deficient mismatch repair tumors, will actually respond to immunotherapy. And therefore, this is an area of significant research efforts to figure out why and how we can improve outcomes for uh, patients. So um, uh, to go on to another example of uh, a, a biological test is looking for uh, BRAF mutated uh, tumors. 
uh, for patients with uh, metastatic colorectal cancer. And BRAF mutation uh, can be seen in about 8 to 10% of people. And in fact, there's now a specific regimen developed uh, for people with BRAF mutations who have progressed after receiving chemotherapy. Uh, at ASCO this year, there was a German study that evaluated a triple combination of chemotherapy drugs uh, known as Fulfoxiri with oxaliplatin, arena-tecan, and 5-FU. Uh, and as an aside, this combination has shown very significant uh, response rates for people with metastatic colorectal cancer. And uh, in this particular trial, it was a comparison whether adding the agent bevacizumab or uh, cetuximab to the chemotherapy uh, was or was not as beneficial. And this was important because there is controversy whether these anti-EGFR agents, such as cetuximab or panituvimab, will actually work if a patient has a BRAF-mutated tumor. And we know for those individuals with RAS-mutated tumors, that these agents do not provide benefit. So in this German study, uh, what was found is that those who had the bevacizumab added to Fulfoxiri did have significantly high response rates, and it did appear that the response rate was better for those uh, patients compared to those who received uh, cetuximab, and that the benefit uh, was for longer duration. Uh, this was not quite at a statistical significance, um, although the trial was relatively small. But I think it reinforced what was and has been the belief that for most people with BRAF-mutated tumors, adding cetuximab or the alternative uh, panituvimab is, is not the best strategy and that these uh, patients, uh, uh, when we're adding a biologic, that bevacizumab should be uh, considered. Yet another biological test for a tumor is to assess whether the tumor has HER2 expression. Now, there are now specific regimens for HER2-expressing tumors, which are routinely used for patients with breast cancer and stomach cancer, and we now have evidence that this approach can also work for people with metastatic colorectal cancer. HER2 expression is relatively rare, uh, occurring in only 2 to 3% of all colorectal cancer patients. But if you look at those who have so-called RAS wild-type tumors, uh, in other words, they're not mutated, there is a higher percentage of those individuals who may have a HER2-expressing tumor. At ASCO, there was a Japanese study looking at what's known as an antibody drug conjugate with the agent trastuzumab deruxetecan, also referred to as TDXT. And this conjugate contains trastuzumab, which is typically used for patients with HER2-expression. So this study looked at metastatic patients 
who were both RAS and BRAS wild type in terms of their tumor assessment. And they even the trial even included patients who may have already received a HER2-directed therapy. And um, uh, this particular trial looked at cohorts of patients and looked at the degree of HER2 expression that the pathologists noted in the tumor. And uh, th this type of testing includes what's known as immunohistochemistry and in-situ hybridization. As expected, most of these patients had tumors on the left side of the colon. This is an observation we've seen uh, for both uh, RAS wild type as well as those with HER2-positive tumors. And these results uh, confirmed that the individuals most likely to benefit from this conjugate had very high expression of tumors, and perhaps this is the very best population of individuals who should be treated. This drug does have a risk of, of uh, causing pneumonitis or inflammation in the lung, and so patients who receive this combination, which is now commercially available, uh, need to be carefully evaluated for symptoms of pneumonitis. I just want to quickly conclude with uh, uh, some work that's ongoing with rectal cancer. There has been a very significant evol evolution of treatment strategies for patients with stage two and three uh, surgically resectable rectal cancer. In the distant past, the standard was patients went to surgery and after surgery received chemotherapy and chemoradiation. Then there was an evolution to what was called uh, neoadjuvant therapy, so people received chemoradiation prior to surgery and then chemotherapy after surgery. And most recently now, uh, uh, most trials are looking at what's called total neoadjuvant therapy, uh, where all therapy is given before surgery. Um, and uh, what has been observed with this type of approach, that there are individuals who can get a clinical complete response after the therapy and may actually be able to avoid uh, surgery. So uh, uh, at ASCO this year, there was a secondary analysis of what's the, known as the OPRA study, uh, and this was for stage two or three patients who were randomized to receive either chemotherapy, followed by chemotherapy with Volpox or K-Box, and then surgery, or the reverse. Uh, they received chemotherapy first, then chemoradiation, uh, and then um, uh, uh, went on to surgery. Uh, but um, uh, what was also done in this study is with restaging that consisted of endoscopy and MRI assessment, there were people who had a complete response and able to undergo what we call uh, watch and wait and to avoid uh, surgery. And in this trial, it did seem 
uh, as has been observed in Europe also, that perhaps an optimal strategy is chemoradiation followed by chemotherapy. Uh, we do need to do some more work in this area. But nonetheless, uh, in this particular trial, uh, those uh, who had a complete uh, clinical response um, showed, uh, in, at least for 78% of the patients, that they could preserve uh, their rectum uh, and uh, avoid the surgery. So this is an area of now of ongoing interest. Clinical trials are integrating the weight, uh, watch and wait approach. And uh, for at least select centers, this is the strategy that's being undertaken. And with that, I'd like to conclude my uh, remarks. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and Dr. Mesner, I'll turn this back over to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding and a lot of wonderful information for patients in terms of the treatment of colorectal cancer and rectal cancer per se. This is really a new information that is so invaluable to our participants. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is Winthrop Rockefeller Endowed Chair in Medical Oncology, Section Head, Hepatopancreatic Biliary and Neuroendocrine Cancers, Co-Director, Medical Initiatives, David M. Rubenstein, Center for Pancreatic Cancer, Chair, Human Research Protection Program at, and IRB, Attending uh, Physician, Member, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. O'Reilly will be addressing updates on the treatment of pancreas cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Reilly. So thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here this afternoon to talk about the updates on pancreas cancer in 2021. And I'm going to break this down into the three settings of this disease. So we're going to talk about early stage uh, disease, to talk about localized pancreas cancer, and then what's happening in the context of metastatic disease or pancreas cancer, which is spread. So firstly, early stage pancreas cancer. So for patients who have localized uh, disease, which is operable and amenable to surgery, typically we follow with uh, what's called adjuvant or post-operative chemotherapy. And we saw an update on a major study called the APAC trial this year. And this looked at a combination of medication, gemcitabine, and a drug called nabpaclitaxel, which are uh, an approved set of drugs in the setting of metastatic disease, but now being looked at in the post-op setting to see if they can impact the long-term outcome. And this was uh, a mature follow-up, so I mean the study completed a number of years ago, and we're seeing the sort of long-term readout from uh, this trial. And it suggested that there may be a signal uh, with this combination, uh, not to say that this is going to be a routinely used recommendation in the post-op setting. The, the main standard for uh, otherwise uh, healthy people who recover from a big surgery is using fulfirinox, but this combination of gemcitabine and napaclitaxel would represent an alternative option for people. So that's always good to, to have options, uh, and this is one that we're 
seeing gain more traction in, in localized uh, pancreas cancer. So the second area where we had an update this year was related to neoadjuvant therapy, and that's looking at preoperative uh, treatment. So for a person with a, a localized pancreas cancer, one consideration is to give chemotherapy first and then followed by potentially radiation and surgery if operable. And that strategy is attractive for, for many reasons, but one of the big ones is that it provides early administration of chemotherapy uh, to cells that might be lurking outside the pancreas that are not identifiable on any imaging approach, so not seen on CT or, or, or a PET scan, for example, but we know that they ultimately can declare themselves and, and preclude a surgery. So this approach of preoperative treatment has been studied now for a number of years, and we're beginning to see some of the important uh, big studies start to, to read out. And this particular one called the PREOPANC uh, trial from Europe suggests that an approach of gemcitabine followed by radiation followed by surgery may, for a selected uh, group of people, uh, lead to an improvement in long-term outcome compared to surgery first followed by post-operative treatment. Now, there are a number of caveats, and, and first thing to say is that study was done with an older chemotherapy uh, program, so it, doesn't, it wasn't compared to the current standards, so we have to keep that in mind. However, uh, it definitely is an approach where there is fairly wide-scale uh, evaluation, uh, both in Europe and the, the U.S., so it's a stay tuned on that uh, and more to come. So the, the next kind of big uh, subgroup of people with pancreas cancer is uh, a group of people who have localized disease but not necessarily candidates for the operation uh, room uh, related to the tumor blood vessel relationship, and we call that uh, borderline resectable or, or even locally advanced are the, the two terms that at the that are used, and it's not a spectrum here. Sorry, it's not. It's not black and white. It's a spectrum of uh, how the disease uh, is positioned in the localized setting. And we saw a little bit uh, earlier in, in the in the year a readout on an important study that suggests that uh, again chemotherapy is going to be a critical tool uh, for this uh, patient grouping. Uh, however, it suggests that an approach of using SBRT, which is high-dose radiation, after chemotherapy may not be uh, so helpful. And, and this isn't entirely in line with other data, uh, but nonetheless, it just underpins once more the, the role of chemotherapy in pancreas cancer, which is localized and operable, or localized but not operable. So if we can change topic and, and move to sort of more developing uh, themes in pancreas cancer, we had a number of updates related to genetically targeted uh, treatments in pancreas cancer. So it's now a standard approach for every person diagnosed with this disease to do uh, two things. Firstly, to do uh, bloodline or saliva-based, what's called germline testing, looking for any 
uh, inherited uh, mutation or change in DNA that can be associated with the development of, of pancreas cancer, and similarly for which there are drugs that can be used for, for targeting uh, that gene in pancreas cancer. And secondly, for uh, a person who's uh, going to be going on to receive uh, treatment, there is a recommendation for doing tumor or somatic-based uh, genetic testing. And we use a, a combination of both, ideally, for, for all individuals uh, with this disease. And so two years ago, we heard the results of the POLO study, which was uh, a trial conducted in metastatic pancreas cancer in uh, individuals who had a BRCA gene uh, mutation uh, in their genetic makeup. And after they had received initial chemotherapy and then went on to receive a targeted medication called Olaparib, uh, which is known as a class of drugs called a PARP inhibitor, and that, that trial was positive in terms of the ability to uh, control the cancer compared to no PARP uh, inhibitor and, and was also generally fairly well tolerated. And based on that, we saw sort of the long-term follow-up of this study, uh, which didn't uh, indicate that there was an overall improvement at the end of the day in the number of patients who, who were living uh, who received Olaparib versus NOS, uh, but there may be some quality of life advantages. And uh, of also, uh, I would say that there's been two uh, key studies that have been activated in, in this setting in pancreas cancer. One is looking at a PARP inhibitor after people have undergone surgery and have a BRCA mutation uh, to see if the addition of a PARP inhibitor in the post-operative setting increases uh, the number of people in whom the cancer does not return. And that's, a, that's kind of an exciting area, and it builds off a study that was presented in breast cancer called the, the Olympia trial, which suggested that that may be a, a, a very positive strategy in, in terms of giving a PARP inhibitor in earlier stage uh, disease. So that's one theme. The second theme is adding immunotherapy to uh, a PARP inhibitor, again in the setting of a BRCA mutation to see if the ability to control the cancer can be augmented with an acceptable uh, level of, of downsides. And so the backdrop to this is that immunotherapy on its own for most people with pancreas cancer hasn't been very helpful, but there are subsets uh, of people, and people with a BRCA mutation may be one of those subsets where immunotherapy does, in fact, have a role. And we're learning uh, from uh, our colleagues in the breast cancer world and our colleagues in the ovary and uh, prostate cancer worlds who also uh, look after patients uh, with BRCA mutations uh, in particular. So again, more to, more to come on that topic. There are a few rarer genetic findings in pancreas cancer, and one is something called uh, fusions, and these are seen typically in, in younger patients uh, with this disease, and we are seeing a bit of an uptick in this disease in, in younger people where we don't find something called a KRAS mutation that's normally present for a majority of people with pancreas cancer, but in a subset of younger people, we won't see this, but we'll see other genes that are changed. And we saw some, some data on a drug called Zenecatuzumab, uh, which looks 
promising in that uh, fairly rare subset of people with pancreas cancer, but again, for that individual person, uh, this this drug and related approaches may have value. So I think more coming there. And I'll just highlight two two last themes to keep, to keep in mind. KRAS, as I mentioned, is a gene that's changed in the tumor. It's not an inherited gene. And this is present in about 90, 92% of, of people with pancreas cancer. And it's thought to be one of the main reasons the, the pancreas cancer grows and develops and, and is often inferred as a main reason why this disease may be more challenging than some other uh, cancers. Uh, and the excitement here is that there are a number of new drugs that are uh, just starting in the clinic or poised to start in, in the clinic in the, in the coming 6 to 12 months. And we're beginning to see some hints in, in certain types of KRAS mutation that we have drugs that can begin to impact the outcome. And we still have a, a long way to go in, in this space, but the fact that there's kind of a reinvigorated focus on this target and, and drugs coming uh, to target this gene, uh, because it's so common in pancreas cancer means that ultimately the application of, of this strategy could be really important in this disease. So once more, I think uh, stay tuned. And uh, these are the, the updates uh, from this last year and from the, the ASCO meeting. Thank you very much for, for listening. And I'm going to, to pass the, the call back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly. That was really outstanding and a lot of new information about the treatment of pancreas cancer and also stay tuned for more. So thank you so much. And we'll, I know we'll be hearing from you again soon. And thank you. Thank you again. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is Senior Associate Dean for Innovation and Initiatives, Executive Vice Chair, Weill Department of Medicine, Richard T. Silver, Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian. And Dr. Leonard will be addressing updates on the treatment of lymphoma presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this uh, uh, great program and uh, I'm enjoying hearing from the other speakers. And uh, like in the other areas you've heard about, ASCO had some important uh, information for those patients dealing with uh, lymphoid uh, blood cancers or blood cancers of the lymph system. I'm going to speak briefly about uh, a type of leukemia that's really closer to a lymphoma called chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL uh, and then focus uh, the rest of the time on uh, lymphomas, again tumors of the lymphatic system. So one of the areas of chronic lymphocytic leukemia that has become very important is that uh, over the last several years, it has become relatively rare for patients to receive chemotherapy for CLL. We have a number of new drugs. One is in the family of what are termed Bruton's tyrosine kinase or BTK inhibitors. We think of BTK as being a switch in the cells that is keeping them alive and uh, uh, preventing them from dying off uh, like they're supposed to. And so we have a number of these drugs. The first of these drugs is called ibrutinib, uh, and this is a pill that's been around for several years now. 
And we have a couple of newer ones that are FDA approved for different types of lymphoma and CLL to different degrees. Uh, one is called acalabrutinib and one is called xanabrutinib. So the brut uh, part of the word uh, gives you the hint that these are brutin's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And the main, uh, while these are pills that people take long term, the main serious potential side effects that we think about with these drugs are a low but important risk of what we call atrial fibrillation, a heart rhythm abnormalities, as well as issues with bleeding. These drugs have the effect of on the platelets, like taking an aspirin can slightly predispose to, to bleeding. And so one of the studies presented at the ASCO meeting was a randomized comparison of acalabrutinib, a, new, a newer BTK inhibitor, versus ibrutinib, the older BTK inhibitor, again in patients with CLL. And the net of this study, as well as another study uh, that has been presented with xanabrutinib, a newer BTK inhibitor, uh, in other settings at other meetings is that the newer BTK inhibitors can work similarly or perhaps even a bit better as far as effectiveness, but have fewer side effects, essentially less of the most important side effects, I would say, those effects on the heart and those effects on, on bleeding. And so this is important because these Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors are used in a variety of different lymphomas, most commonly in CLL, again, but also in mantle cell lymphoma, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, and marginal zone lymphoma, all of which are different types of B-cell uh, lymphomas. And so this is something that I think uh, is changing practice in some ways, and that in many situations, Doctors and patients are choosing one of the newer drugs uh, because at least they may in some important ways be uh, less, have less side effects and they may work either similarly or perhaps even a little bit better uh, than the original version. So that's an important uh, choice. It's also useful for patients that are on these drugs that if they're having these side effects or at risk of these side effects that, that potentially making a change in certain situations uh, in their therapy might be uh, an option to consider. These drugs are typically given uh, long-term, meaning that most of the studies uh, have been in patients that are receiving them until either they have problems with side effects or until the, the treatment stops working against the tumor. And so there are a number of different uh, studies that are looking at combining uh, a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, with uh, another drug to essentially allow it to potentially work better, get the patient into a better remission, and potentially facilitate uh, stopping the drug. If the patient has had a good response, maybe the idea is that you can stop the drug altogether rather than staying on it indefinitely. And so we saw some data uh, looking at the combination of ibrutinib plus a drug called venetoclax, which is a BCL2 inhibitor. BCL2 is a protein that helps keep cells alive and can contribute to resistance to other either chemotherapy or other medicines. And we saw some interesting data suggesting that combining ibrutinib with another drug such as venetoclax 
could potentially improve the quality of remissions, meaning the patients have less and less in the way of traces of disease and might facilitate ultimately strategies that will allow patients, rather than taking these drugs indefinitely, to uh, to essentially say that if you've reached a good response, it, it may be reasonable to stop the drug and watch, and then uh, hopefully the patient will go for a long period of time, and if the disease comes back, then either things could be resumed or a new drug could be chosen. So we saw that uh, at, at ASCO as well. Again, uh, and there are a number of studies that are looking at these types of combinations to try to turn an indefinite treatment into a time-limited, shorter-term treatment. Uh, another important bit of data came from my colleague, Dr. Peter Martin, who looked at a type of lymphoma called mantle cell lymphoma. Mantle cell lymphoma is a type of lymphoma that accounts for about 10% of patients with lymphoma. It tends to respond to treatment but recur over time. Younger patients are treated often with autologous stem cell transplants and intensive chemotherapy in many settings to try to prolong the remission, although it's debatable whether people actually live longer with this more intensive approach, whereas older patients uh, are typically not treated quite as intensively. And there are debates as to whether or not an intensive treatment, which can keep people in remission longer but has more side effects, actually makes people live longer. And so there was some interesting data, and this is a type of data that crosses different cancer types and different clinical situations and clinical studies, what we call real-world data, which these data came from an organization called Flatiron Health, which looks at thousands of patients' uh, de-identified or anonymous medical records and basically tries to learn how patients do uh, from these batches of anonymous medical records to see if by looking at the power of looking at thousands of records, again, in an anonymous way, uh, can we help to get new information that, uh, about how things are going in the real world with patients outside of clinical trials, which in some cases may be a selected group of patients, may not be representative of what's really happening in the community. And the net of this study and this, this type of data you will see and hear more about, you may have already heard some about it, uh, in various different contexts. But in mantle cell lymphoma, these data suggested that, in fact, patients do not necessarily have such need such aggressive therapy, particularly if they're younger and can tolerate it. It may not necessarily translate into a benefit that is worth the side effects of such. This doesn't definitively answer the question, but it does, again, highlight the fact that there is some variability in how patients might be treated with mantle cell, and patients really do need to speak with their doctors as to the pros and cons of different approaches that might, uh, on balance, uh, both be reasonable. It does, again, also highlight the idea that this real-world data could contribute to our knowledge of how we treat patients in important ways. I want to finish in the last couple of minutes of my section with a little bit of data on um, CAR T cells. You may have heard if you're a lymphoma patient or a multiple myeloma patient uh, or, the, or you have loved ones with those diseases, we do have a number of different CAR T cells. These are strategies where the patient's own blood cells, the T cells, which are important immune cells in the blood, are removed from the patient like a fancy blood donation. They are then engineered in the laboratory to 
be more robust, to be stronger, able to fight lymphoma cells for a variety of different ways. They are then after some light chemotherapy reinfused into the patient, and those T cells can then set up shop and go to work to try to kill the tumor cells. And these are important uh, drugs that have been approved for a number of different uh, uh, cancers, including uh, some patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia, some patients with aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, some patients with mantle cell lymphoma that we mentioned earlier, and more recently there have been data with follicular lymphoma, one of the indolent lymphoma subtypes. So we have a number of different CAR T-cells approved for different scenarios. Uh, some are approved for other malignancies recently in multiple myeloma as well. Um, and we saw more data uh, presented at ASCO with one of the agents, Tizagen Lecluso, which is one of the T-cell constructs, um, and it basically suggested that a high percentage of patients in the range of about 90% of patients with follicular lymphoma who have been through a variety of different treatments can respond to this uh, approach. And these were encouraging data. The durability, the long-term lasting, in other words, how long do these patients stay in remission is something that's going to be very important uh, as we compare this approach to other approaches. But I think this is another new important option for patients with follicular lymphoma as well. And then finally, we had some data presented from the Alliance Group, which I'm a part of. It's part of the National Cancer Institute's National Clinical Trials Network. These are very important because they're government-funded, so it's our tax dollars at work to fight uh, cancers. We had some data showing that there may be a benefit of autologous stem cell transplant in patients with primary brain lymphomas. This is a rare type of lymphoma, but uh, these aggressive treatments may provide some benefit in patients with primary CNS or primary brain lymphomas, so some important data there. And then also some data in patients with bulky or larger masses uh, of Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, suggesting that you can avoid radiation treatment in some patients if the PET scan after chemotherapy shows a very nice response. So new data suggesting that uh, changes in some of the modalities of treatment for some patients may offer value. So with that, there's a lot happening in lymphoma like in other cancers, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to spend a few minutes uh, today to update you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Leonard. That really is amazing. A lot of new things, and um, I think it's very helpful to all of our participants on the call today, both for their particular type of cancer for lymphomas, but also for understanding how that applies to everything else. So it's just that there's a theme that's going on here. I so appreciate um, this uh, very inspire inspiring presentation. Thank you. And. Our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Weil Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing updates on the treatment of leukemia presented at ASCO. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, and thanks to um, all of you for listening in. And what an esteemed group of colleagues I'm following. Um, in the, in the interest of time, I am going to give a focused presentation to you on leukemia, which doesn't tend to be the most um, active meeting for leukemia research, but we definitely have several advances to speak about. Um, and I'm going to speak about um, 
several different types of leukemia. I'm going to build on what my colleague, Dr. John Leonard, was just talking about, which is CAR T cells. So I'm going to start with treatment for patients with ALL, or acute lymphoblastic uh, leukemia. So Dr. Leonard, I mentioned the technology, which has been quite exciting and, and very much cutting edge, which is CAR T cells, or engineered T cells um, trained or in, in empowered to be able to recognize and treat cancer cells um, from the patient themselves and then, and then given back as an anti-cancer therapy. So at the same time as the ASCO meeting and a publication in the medical journal Lancet, we saw a um, study of a type of T cell uh, called KTE or KTE X19 from a trial called Zuma3. We use a lot of acronyms and, and tag names. But these are, uh, again, engineered T cells against something called CD19, which is an antigen on um, malignant lymphocytes. And this was an international study looking at patients who had had treatment and failed treatment for ALL. And this uh, was 71 patients, which is a fairly robust study, where we saw a very successful ability to um, make CAR T cells over 90% and were given to more than three-quarters of the patients, um, which means uh, you know, the treatment was on track at the start. And the good news was that um, the remission rates were quite high. It included some patients whose blood didn't totally recover, but the leukemia went into remission. Um, and the, the um, duration of remission is robust uh, and survival much longer than we might ever imagine for patients who couldn't access this treatment. Um, for people who responded, most, the, the majority of them are still um, uh, uh, you know, alive and well, and, and many of them had reached what's called MRD negativity, where their leukemia was no longer detectable by even the most sensitive testing. Um, we've gotten a lot better at managing side effects, and newer CAR-T products have shown uh, a better tolerability profile. So I think we're going to see um, some information about these different CAR-T cell products being moved forward and approved in different areas that Dr. Leonard mentioned. So that's one way of saying where patients may not necessarily need to go to bone marrow transplant, which is a more you know uh, complex and 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 uh, involved medical undertaking for some tough leukemias, and I'm going to build on that theme by then um, talking about another study in, in ALL, which um, was presented at, at ASCO 2021 and is related to what we call a non-chemotherapy approach. So traditionally, we use what people call chemotherapy, which would be medications which generally do have a fair bit of effect on healthy blood, but hopefully intend to focus and eliminate mostly abnormal blood but invariably, we, we, it's hard to separate. So as we've developed better therapies, um, we have been able to come up with so-called chemotherapy-free or non-chemotherapy, more targeted approaches. And ALL, um, we have um, a study, what's called a phase two study, where we're looking at the activity of a regimen including a, a different kind of antibody called a bispecific antibody called blinitumumab, um, and, a, and a medication which treats um, a specific genetic defect called the Philadelphia chromosome. And so this is for patients with Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, and the medication was panantinib. Panantinib is an oral medication, which does have some side effects, but um, is very powerful against leukemias that have this Philadelphia chromosome, including chronic myeloid leukemia and ALL. And this combination, again, would not have the same risks as conventional chemotherapy. Um, again, there are some risks of all therapies, but much different. And this was quite an encouraging study where um, Patients were given a modified dose of panantinib and multiple cycles or treatments with this antibody of which is given by an infusion 
over long periods of time, so it's a steady treatment. Um, and the banana was reduced after a period of time, and the results were quite encouraging. Um, the, um, <clears throat> the the response rates were um, very high. Almost all patients responded, um, uh, upwards of 90% overall. And what was most notable was patients really achieved a um, complete molecular response or a response where the Philadelphia chromosome marker was was not detected. And the um, the message here was is that we may be approaching a regimen for adult ALL where patients may also not need to move forward with an allogeneic bone marrow transplant as a necessity. So our targeted therapy is getting better in ALL, as you can tell, by CAR T-cell therapy and by different sort of non-chemotherapy-targeted non approaches. Let me move now to AML. And again, we, um, we saw a lot of updates, but I think probably the, the, the most, most notable study myself and my colleagues thought was important to present was about a new combination, also um, a different way of treating acute leukemia rather than conventional chemotherapy with all the expected side effects of, of um, a, a definite effect on the healthy blood, um, which would um, leave people very vulnerable, um, and, and more of the conventional chemotherapy side effects such as gastrointestinal and hair loss and things like that. This is a combination of a medication called azacitidine, which is an infusional drug, uh, meaning it's given by IV, but it, it, it is more of a uh, corrective drug. It's called a hypomethylating agent um, and has a, a more gradual effect on, on, on either pre-leukemia or MDS and AML. Or, uh, and, and this azacitidine medication was com has been combined with venetoclax, a drug which essentially gets the cell machinery, which tells the cell to senesce and die when it should, back working. Um, this combination has been very powerful in AML and is offered an alternative to conventional chemotherapy in patients in whom chemotherapy would be too risky or patients who are in older age brackets. And what we learned at ASCO was that when patients achieve a very deep remission and we can't detect their minimal, any residual leukemia by sensitive testing, much like I mentioned in the trial with the non-chemotherapy approach in ALL, these patients do very well, and we saw that the, the long-term success rates, overall survival, and um, was, was noticeably better for patients who have this called MRD-negative complete remission. So they means we can't detect um, their leukemia by sensitive methods. And believe me, the, the, the detection methods have been getting better, and as our therapies have getting better, so the bar keeps getting higher and higher. This is another pathway forward where we think patients may not necessarily need to have an, an allogeneic transplant to keep their leukemia in remission, even with acute myeloid leukemia, which and, you know, oftentimes really that is viewed as a, as a best solution, although we'd love to come up with alternatives. A lot of encouraging news about in acute leukemia, ALL and AML, with targeted or, or uh, novel approaches that are allowing us to think differently about it, the role of allogeneic um, stem cell transplant. I'll leave with a note about chronic myeloid leukemia, my, my favorite disease in which I treat um, most, and that um, we continue to see gradual uh, additional data added to the mix about a new medication called Asiminib, or ABL001. So um, in the last few meetings, both in the, in the end of the last year and the spring of this year, both in the U.S. and Europe, we've seen continued um, follow-up of a comparative study where Asiminib was compared to Basutinib, another very good medication used after people have had one or or generally two of the other medications available for CML. So these are people needing other treatment. Either their CML didn't respond or they had side effects. And Asemenib is really offering us a, a better uh, response profile with really uh, acceptable side effects 
and may become a better choice for patients uh, maybe as their third line of treatment. Um, and, and, you know, that sounds like down the line, wow, third. But, you know, a lot of times we're at, it's luxurious to have five approved drugs in this field, and now we'll have a sixth, and we'll be able to think about adjusting treatment when people aren't responding well enough with safer and, and more potent medications to, to solve any of the shortcomings we have. CML can be re- well treated with the available treatments we have, but we're clearly looking for more. And this medication, um, we hope, will be FDA approved in the next three to six months. Uh, so look for that and, um, and stay tuned for more information on leukemias in the coming meetings, particularly the ASH meeting at the end of 2021. Uh, um, and that'll include my comments for leukemia for ASCO 2021. And thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. And yes, we will look forward to the post-ASH meetings. It's true, but your presentation was outstanding and a lot of wonderful information for people with uh, leukemias. And I really um, appreciate your presentation very much. And I know our, our participants do as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Mesa. Dr. Mesa is Director of Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson, Mays Family Foundation, Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center, and NCI Designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Mesa will be addressing updates on the treatment of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mesa. Well, deepest thanks for the invitation, Carolyn. Always wonderful to be on these discussions as well as provide for individuals participating an update on the myeloproliferative neoplasms. Uh, the myeloproliferative neoplasms are a group of chronic leukemias, so somewhat of a further extension of the topic of blood-related disorders that my friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Morrow, had, had introduced. Now, when we speak of the myeloproliferative neoplasms, we're speaking of primarily uh, a few interrelated diseases characterized by the bone marrow making too many cells. Essential thrombocythemia, which is too many platelets, polycythemia vera with too many red blood cells, and myelofibrosis, a more active form of an MPN where there is additionally scarring in the bone marrow, a propensity to lower blood counts, and an even risk that the uh, illness could lead to individuals passing away from the disease. Now, many exciting updates this summer, both presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. I'll also be touching base on some things presented both there and at the European Hematology Association. These are kind of the two main touch points in the summer, which occur each year for these group of disorders. So first, let's start with essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera. These diseases have a lot of uh, interrelationship in how we help to control these diseases. Individuals afflicted with these diseases, many we hope will live their normal lifespan, but they are at risk of developing blood clots or bleeding, which could be life-threatening. They can have disease-associated symptoms that can impact quality of life, and they do have a risk of progression to either myelofibrosis or to acute leukemia. Now, some important updates. First, the potential of new therapies. So essential thrombocythemia, we currently uh, give all patients an aspirin, and then selectively we use agents such as hydroxyurea to control 
The blood counts sometimes anagrolide as a backup. There's a new agent, a longer-acting interferon, which was presented at ASCO, called P1101, or ropegylated interferon, which is approved for polycythemia vera uh, in Europe and may become approved in the U.S. for polycythemia vera in the near future. Here, there was an abstract describing an ongoing clinical phase three trial for individuals that have symptoms that have failed hydroxyurea, looking to prove the effectiveness of this long-acting interferon uh, over our other current options as a better option, hopefully, for patients with ET. In polycythemia vera, there was further updates regarding this agent and its impact on polycythemia vera. As I mentioned, it's approved in polycythemia vera in Europe, and now we had presented this summer further data suggesting the longer patients are on this therapy, perhaps the greater impact it has in terms of not only controlling elevated blood counts, decreasing, decreasing the risk of blood clots or bleeding, but maybe also further altering the disease course with a decrease in the amount of the number of cells afflicted with the disease that we estimate by the allele burden of the JAK2. When we speak of allele burden, you can imagine if we looked at 100 white blood cells, it's the percentage of white blood cells that have that abnormal gene. So further positive information regarding that. Additionally, there was presented data on a new type of therapy for polycythemia vera in development. This is one from a company called Protagonist. It is an agent that is an analog of hepcidin. Hepcidin is involved with iron metabolism, and by giving patients the artificial form of hepcidin, we're stimulating that pathway it can simulate the phlebotomy that we normally do for patients with polycythemia vera. It can create a state, a pseudo state of, of anemia of chronic disease. What this means is that patients may need less phlebotomy and they may be able to have better control of their blood counts without uh, the need for phlebotomy or iron deficiency. So in ongoing studies that were presented from Mount Sinai School of Medicine, now that we'll be in a phase three trial, this agent showed the ability to both control the hematocrit, improve symptoms, and for iron levels to improve. Now, the majority of new studies were in the most advanced of the myeloproliferative mutations, and that's in myelofibrosis, because it affects people most significantly. Many drugs sometimes start clinical trials with that group of patients for their enlarged spleen, for their difficult symptoms, to improve low blood counts, and hopefully to help to prevent progression of the disease to acute leukemia or help individuals live longer and or live better. So a few key takeaways. One, several different studies demonstrating that the therapies that we have been using with JAK inhibitors likely help patients not only live better, but probably live longer. Further evidence showing that prior reports that therapy with ruxolitinib or the medicine Jacofi helps to live, helps patients with myelofibrosis to live longer, probably in part because they feel stronger, uh, less complications of disease, and probably a lower likelihood of progression. In parallel this year, there was both data which I presented, which showed with a additional JAK inhibitor, momolitinib, 
that there likely can be an improvement in survival, but that the improvement in that survival might be tied with uh, improvement in the anemia that patients can experience. This drug can also help to improve anemia or transfusion dependence. And becoming transfusion independent was associated with an improvement in survival. Uh, additionally, there was data presented regarding fedratinib, another FDA-approved agent for myelofibrosis, uh, available for individuals to try. It's approved in the front and second-line setting in myelofibrosis. And again, data suggesting that people living longer, living better, and perhaps uh, having a, a longer period of time before the disease might progress. Now, additionally, there were multiple new agents which lead us to be excited about new options coming up in the future for these diseases. First, with a group of agents that are being added on to a uh, baseline therapy of ruxolinib to try to help to improve outcomes. First, with an inhibitor of a protein that is called BET, that we feel complements JAK inhibition, a drug called Pelabresib, helpful in adding on in the frontline setting for newly diagnosed patients or in individuals that have been on ruxolinib and lost their response. Both of these are being tested now in phase three clinical trials. The MANIFEST-2 study is currently accruing for newly diagnosed patients to try to prove that benefit and see whether that is worthwhile for some or all patients with myelofibrosis. In parallel, uh, an agent, Navidaclax, it is a cousin of the drug that Dr. Morrow had mentioned, Venetoclax, that uh, both help to deepen and broaden response to ruxolitinib alone. Additionally, there are several drugs which we learned about that are being used for individuals that have previously failed ruxolitinib, such as uh, an additional agent called uh, IMG7289 or Bamademstat, that is an LSD1 inhibitor of which there was data both in myelofibrosis as well for individuals uh, with a central thrombocytemia in a different study. So many different things to be uh, that we are uh, excited about. Uh, additionally, the agent uh, Middlestat. This is a drug working by a different mechanism of action. It is a telomerase inhibitor. Telomerase is involved with the process of aging and the protection of, of our genes and chromosomes in the aging process. Uh, and this agent has had prior early benefit for individuals with myelofibrosis and is now launched into a phase three clinical trial. So how would I tie all of these things together for you? Well, I would walk away from these comments and I'd be very hopeful that there are numerous agents in development for ET, for P. vera, for myelofibrosis that might have strong impacts alone or in combination, particularly in myelofibrosis, and important new options in ET and PV. Uh, what you'll learn as well is you're hearing updates across many diseases, but know that there is significant cross-pollination. We may learn advances not only in the drugs and therapies that Dr. Morrow had discussed, but even for the other toxins you've heard that may have impact on blood conditions or conversely, therapies that start with blood conditions and then have an impact on other cancers that can afflict people. 
So with that, much to be hopeful for, and I will hand the podium back over to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Dr. Messer. That was wonderful. The concept of cross-pollinization is really important because I think that that's really something that people are, that's a, an important theme actually in today's uh, program. So thank you so much. Thank, and thank you for that excellent presentation and lots of hope for people as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And Dr. Daniels is clinical professor of medicine, UC San Antonio, San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels is going to be addressing updates on the treatment of melanoma presented at ASCO. And he's also going to conclude and do a wrap-up of our ASCO Part 2. So I really am very indebted to Dr. Daniels, and I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, Cancer Care, for um, asking me to participate. And it's been a marathon, um, but I'm happy to accept the baton and talk about uh, melanoma. Now, melanoma happens in many places. Um, skin is the main area, but um, it also happens in the gut and the eyes. And then on the flip side, on the skin, other tumors happen, um, not just melanoma, but uh, more common ones like basal cells and squamous cells. But I'm going to really focus on skin melanoma uh, for my talk. And like the others, um, kind of run through earlier phases of disease and then advanced disease and, and what uh, we've learned in this last year. So uh, prevention, need to start there uh, for a skin cancer, especially uh, as we're in the midst of this heat wave and uh, summer affliction of activities. Um, we have to think about sun safety and uh, skin awareness. And the nice thing is that um, all those efforts, um, plus the efforts of uh, treating advanced disease has uh, led to the publication of the SEER database um, looking back over the last decade and showing um, a, finally um, a dent in the incidence rate and the impact that melanoma is having uh, on the population. And in fact, melanoma was one of the tumors that was highlighted as having um, the best uh, as far as decrease in incidence and decrease in uh, impact on people. So good job. Keep it up. Um, let's keep awareness going for uh, for skin and skin cancers and, and melanoma. Um, but moving on, uh, when people uh, do have melanoma, most of the time they're presenting with uh, stage one uh, melanoma, which is a, a thin lesion found on the skin. And thankfully, if we pick it up early, um, the risk of recurrence, while not zero, is pretty low. Um, and again, awareness is kind of our best tool and strategy there, as well as the sun-safe practices. There have been studies trying to look at um, a little bit thicker melanomas, and melanomas staged by how deeply it penetrates into the skin, as well as uh, the lymph nodes it involves, or if it's spread through the bloodstream. And for stage two, which are thicker melanomas, or if they're ulcerated, there are ongoing trials looking at uh, immune therapies to lower that risk of recurrence. But that's going to be a stay tuned uh, for next ASCO um, because that study is just completed looking at immune therapies in this earlier phase. We did get a lot of updates on adjuvant uh, therapy uh, for advanced stage, so stage three, those with node positive uh, involvement at the time of diagnosis. And now the standard of care is currently to give either a targeted therapy if they're BRAF uh, mutated, um, 
and you've heard about some of these uh, targeted agents throughout uh, the presentations, or immune therapies, and specifically um, inhibitors of the PD-1 pathway, such as nivolumab or uh, pembrolizumab. And these are FDA-approved um, drugs. However, um, also on the options list when we're thinking about a patient is observation. And it's always um, you know, a deep conversation with the patient, well, if there's such a high risk that it's coming back, um, why do I have observation as an option that's being presented to me? And you know, really for two reasons. One is that, um, you know, unfortunately, our, our therapies still have uh, quality of life issues. And one of the things about high risk doesn't mean guaranteed risk. Um, it means that your chance that the tumor's coming back is high, but not 100%. And so we know we're treating a group of patients with medications that would have never recurred otherwise. And the other problem is that um, despite the adjuvant treatments, we still have patients who recur. And so um, that speaks to maybe they were on the wrong agent um, at the wrong time. And so while we're benefiting a group of patients, there, we have to recognize that there's an, another group that's not um, benefiting from these earlier exposures to medications. And so how are we um, trying to figure out who is the right patient uh, to treat? And the European cooperative groups um, have an ongoing study asking just this question, which is early versus late exposure in high-risk patients. And Dr. Egermont presented updates to this um, uh, really watershed adjuvant trial that's going to really help define better which patients um, should be treated early and which patients should we wait on. And uh, the data so far is just starting to, to trickle in and give us some insights into who to treat with uh, immune therapies um, after uh, they progress and what the value of those immune therapies is. And so, you know, we, we left ASCO still with that um, to-be-continued theme here of stage three disease, and right now uh, we still have all the options on the table for patients to run through and, and the long uh, risk-benefit discussions. But I think over the next uh, year or two, we should get uh, better information on uh, this early versus late uh, treatment option. So moving into metastatic disease, um, so this is where um, cancers spread through the bloodstream or, or to other parts of the body. And again, just like the other, other speakers, uh, we talk about targeted therapies. So BRAF is the, is the on switch for about half the skin melanomas out there. And so we had five-year updates for a lot of different studies, including uh, what was called the Columbus study, looking at encorafenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor, and showing out to five years continued benefits for a subset of patients. Um, that remain on treatment still with metastatic disease, uh, but are doing quite well five years down the road for taking um, pills or a pill uh, once a day. And the adverse event profiles, we didn't see any additional adverse events um, over this longer-term follow-up than we already knew about. And so this is a, a well-tolerated, relatively well-tolerated medication that seems to be controlling the disease in a subset of patients uh, fairly long. That theme was continued for the immune therapies, and we got six-and-a-half-year uh, data updates for uh, combination immune therapy. 
And combination immune therapy is using two agents, um, two checkpoint inhibitors, ipilimumab and nivolumab um, are the standard ones uh, that are used together in patients with advanced melanoma. And looking out, um, one of the really sea changes in melanoma has been this um, discovery that immune therapy leads to long-term uh, treatment-free survival for patients. So patients are put on a um, therapy, and several decades ago, uh, it was very seldom that we had a long-term survivor. Now, we had to take the study out beyond five years to get um, to that uh, median survival point, and still the curves are still going out flat where the majority of patients uh, are still benefiting from the from the uh, medication six and a half years uh, after being initially exposed to them. So this is really great data. It's also uh, a theme I'll just mention, as um, Dr. Mesa said, there's themes throughout this program, and that is uh, we're getting long-term data because our outcomes are all improving across the board for pretty much most tumor types. And this uh, long-term data is impacting the overall uh, outcomes for the general population. So really, just uh, a shout-out to all the work that's gone on over the, the decades before. Um, now, finally, we're getting uh, to the point where we're making some, some pretty substantial impacts. Another theme has been trying to lower the toxicities from treatments. And um, this has continued in melanoma, where we're trying to limit the number of doses um, that was presented last year or change the dosing. And a study was presented, the 511 study, uh, looking at different dosings of the combination of immune therapies and showing, while not a, a comparative study, um, showing lower rates of toxicities in, in the um, experimental dosing arm, which uh, was lower doses of ipilimumab but yet preservation of the response rates um, and hopefully the, the long-term outcomes, uh, but that's, that's still developing. I'll, I'll just mention a few more shout-outs. Um, one is, um, while these uh, treatments I've highlighted so far are good, um, unfortunately there are uh, patients who don't respond to them or become resistant and several agents are being developed uh, to address this. Uh, one is a LAG3 inhibitor, and so the relativity study uh, was discussed, which was a uh, phase three uh, study looking at adding a LAG3 inhibitor to a PD-1 inhibitor and, um, and showing outcomes for patients were improved. And uh, gratifyingly, the toxicities um, did not seem to be different than just giving the uh, single agent alone. And this was also confirmed by a study out of MD Anderson looking not um, in metastatic disease, but in patients with resectable melanomas taking the same agent and showing some really exciting activity in patients with earlier stage melanoma and um, having complete responses in these earlier staged uh, melanoma patients in a neoadjuvant setting. So maybe the beginning of a, uh, a sea change there in the uh, placement of surgical management for uh, melanomas. And then lastly, um, I'll just mention, as, as again in a couple of the other talks, cell therapy. Um, melanoma also has been uh, looking at cell therapies 
and the use of autologous cells, so immune cells from a patient, uh, these are taken as tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, so a tumor is removed from the patient. Uh, immune cells are isolated um, and then given back to a patient. And one of the hang-ups has been the difficulty in isolating and growing these cells. Um, well, Lifalusal is a commercialized product where um, cells are harvested and sent to a central manufacturing and then given back to the treatment center uh, to administer to the patient. And in this um, uh, update for the study, um, they looked at patients who had previously had prior checkpoint inhibitors, were resistant to that, um, but then uh, had responses to uh, autologous cells. So trying to, again, chip away at that group of patients who are not responding to our current therapies. So pretty exciting time in melanoma, and I'll switch to kind of how does this fit in with all the other talks. And one thing that struck me was, again, we're talking about long-term data, and long-term data are five-plus years in follow-up. And this is really exciting because um, we can actually talk to patients about um, the impacts of therapies on and making these choices and how the toxicities are also impacting patients' lives and really helping make a better informed decision than uh, previous discussions, which were more centered around response rates and short-term outcomes. Um, so I think um, that was one theme that I heard throughout. Another one was overcoming resistance. Um, so in lung cancer, you know, adding chemotherapy to immune therapies, finding um, new epidermal growth factor receptor um, inhibitors that um, help those patients who, who need uh, another line of therapy after becoming resistant to the first line. So overcoming resistance through better understanding of what makes these tumors grow and whether it's BTK inhibitors in CLL or PARP inhibitors in pancreatic cancer, we're really getting a much deeper understanding of what drives the growth of these cancers. And now you're hearing a leukemia doctor talk about non-chemotherapy-based treatments for leukemia, so, which is um, amazing that we're getting finally away from these agents which were a lot of them, you know, relatively nonspecific in how they impacted patients and, of course, then had uh, relatively broad toxicities to being very specific about these targeting. And I think all this gives us a peek towards the future where all these genomics and transcriptomics are going to be integrated into a personalized um, care plan, and that will allow one of ASCO's missions, which is also to expand this beyond to others. Whereas right now, these are complicated um, therapies, but we're going to get to the point where we can take this information, maybe with the help of artificial intelligence, as was alluded to, and come out with personalized therapy plans that we can adapt in real time and try to benefit more patients. So I think this is really an exciting time to to be looking at the uh, evolution of cancer, and hopefully when we look back at this era, we can we can all say, "Wow, that's about the time that it all switched." So, uh, so thank you very much for listening to all these presentations, and I turn it back to Caroline.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. Only you could do this type of wonderful presentation on melanoma, but also do this kind of wrap-up of our of this whole two-part series. And thank you so much. And and also, um, I do want to thank all of our speakers. They've been outstanding, really quite a lineup. I know we could send some for a much longer period of time. And I do want to just wrap up by saying a few words about the fact that um, all of this information that you've received, uh, please take it back to your treating healthcare teams. Of course, they can help you to interpret how it best um, affects your particular treatment. Also, um, in addition to that, um, do for those of you who have want to take advantage of the cancer care services we offer, um, please feel free to contact Cancer Care um, um, either through our helpline or also um, on our website. Um, we do offer a number of very uh, practical services, both practical and financial assistance. We offer online support groups of case management. Um, we also um, help with uh, people who are interested in learning to get better screening for their cancers. And also, um, we have um, a number of these workshops and various publications, and our website is chock full of information. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.